we believe that decisions made early on in projects have the chance to create or destroy very significant value. And at the moment, the number of options or uh, the level of detail that can be considered early on in projects is very heavily constrained. But there's a real opportunity here, I think, for the engineering community to use artificial intelligence and big data to try and pull together these different data sources and really at this early stage in planning to bring the voice of people and communities on board in decision making. And our world will change. Things will start to look different. You will start to see things in the world that are strange and feel just like, who designed that and why does it look that way? Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Tim Sheehan. This week we've partnered with Atkins to look at how artificial intelligence is being used for optioneering. Optioneering is the point very early in a project where planners look at the options available for infrastructure. For example, potential routes for providing utilities like power and water, or ways to provide better connectivity between cities. Traditionally, each option has been studied individually and it's a time-consuming task, limited by human experience, availability of information, time and money. One thing to, to remember about civil engineering projects is it's not just the lack of information, but there's also a lack of time. Most projects, infrastructure projects these days in particular, are fast-tracked or on the books because of a reduction in service. There's some critical need for this project. This is Chris Harmon. I'm a civil engineer, and for the last five years, I've really focused on design technology and innovation utilized in the delivery of civil engineering design primarily. So big infrastructure projects, small infrastructure projects, uh, the industry is seeing a lot of change. And my role is to kind of shepherd us through and decide how we're going to deliver projects. As Chris says, the industry is seeing a lot of change. The biggest is perhaps the availability of more data, but using this effectively requires a change in approach to projects. And things are changing. So we would just draw two-dimensional drawings and we would do hand calculations or calculations to update our designs. And the example that I would just give is like a pipe. If you're designing for a storm drain, you draw a 2D line on a plan and then you calculate the flows it's going to see, and then you size that pipe, and then you update the drawing with the size. And then it kind of moved to parameters. Also known as parametric design, where design calculations are basically pre-programmed into software. The dependencies for Chris's pipe are connected so that the effect of a single change is automatically cascaded through the pipe. So now the pipe on the in the model is a 3D pipe. And all I have to do is type in the size and the walls automatically bump out. It, it understands where the invert elevation of a pipe is. It knows when you type the size in, it knows that the top goes up. It kind of is it's using parameters. If I drag it out another 300 feet and over to the left, it automatically kind of elongates that 3D object. This shift has been happening over the past two decades. And just as engineers get used to this algorithmic thinking, technology is moving forward again. And in that same kind of vein, we're, we're seeing a shift lately to more generative design. So this, like, this concept of generative or artificial intelligence to generate a design. And in that system, 
your software may be running the calculations and automatically updating that pipe. You know, maybe it's giving you multiple options. Maybe it's giving you two pipes next to each other. They could run a little bit more shallow and miss a clash or something like that. But it can actually do even more than this. But now we're kind of empowering this to take another couple steps for us to, to look at multiple options and maybe provide us with a list of different options that we can weight based on how what, what we think is important for selection. And that's that kind of industry shift you can imagine. You know, the parameters have has opened this up and now we can start to use that same set of parameters or rules to generate designs. In an environment where engineers, designers and planners are being asked to do more work in less time, the one thing they actually have more of than they did 20 years ago is information. And the place where this could make a massive difference is right at the beginning of a project. So when we look at a, a public infrastructure project, there's a lot of information that's available. You know, there's uh, 3D information for terrain. There's geospatial data that's available. We understand where the right-of-way is. We understand where property boundaries are. We understand where constraining features might be. So roadways, but not just there's a road here, but we know how busy that road is. We know how important that corridor is. So when we're looking at starting a design, we're actually kind of on the left-hand side, pre-start, we have all this information we can use that we never had before. Problem is, when you have all this data and a very limited time to do anything with it, then how are you going to get something else out of it? And so that's where we're going on the right-hand side. So this is more on, okay, we've got all this data. Let's run it through um, some options analysis software. Let's base this on criteria or parameters for design and, and look at the constraints and weight these options. So now we're, we're able to use uh, generative design, artificial intelligence, parameter-based designs, feed all that data into with our own design data, and then generate many more options, but not just more options, come to a better idea or better certainty on those options. It all sounds so straightforward, but the next part is finding the right software. This is Harry Hunter from Atkins. His role is to connect smart technologists with smart engineers in order to do things better. I'm the optimist in the room going, look, let's find a reason to work together to, to use new technology to make something happen. Initially, Harry says that Atkins were working on their own optioneering kind of technology, using artificial intelligence. But then they decided to see what partnerships they could build. It's uh, reasonably simple, I would say, to build something that can be only be used by a software engineer, uh, a series of uh, scripts, something very technical. It's much more difficult to create something that's accessible and usable by non-technical in a software development sense so for users. So we got to this point and we're looking at, okay, do we continue working with, with our internal effort or do we partner? And at that point, we came across Continuum. We help engineers to consider more design options in more detail much earlier in their projects. This is Gregor Moretsky, founder and CEO of Continuum Industries. We believe that decisions made early on in projects have the chance to create or destroy very significant value. And at the moment, the number of options or uh, the level of detail that can be considered early on in projects is very heavily constrained. The company started out at the University of Edinburgh, where a lot of work was going on into the potential for Hyperloop technology. This futuristic rail system uses linear electric motors to drive magnetically levitating capsules or pods through a very low air pressure or even vacuum tubes. 
In theory, this lack of air resistance results in speeds of up to 700 miles an hour, cutting journey times from hours to minutes. So we said, what if we were to parameterize, um, codify a Hyperloop system into a software model and allow a piece of technology, an AI, an optimization algorithm to um, work through all of the different options very, very quickly. So the premise was that this would allow people to build confidence in the technology and projects much faster and take them through the planning and design stage within a fraction of the time it takes at the moment. We pretty quickly realized that there's also a huge opportunity to apply that in other markets for existing established infrastructure, such as water pipelines, electricity transmission, as well as uh, railways and roads. It quickly began to attract attention from the industry. And so far, it's been used for over 5,000 kilometers of linear assets, largely water pipelines, but also other types of linear infrastructure, such as electricity transmission, export cables for offshore wind farms, and in the future, also roads and railways. So how does it work? One of the biggest concerns about artificial intelligence is that the data is plugged into a black box that no one understands. This is where the need for collaboration comes in, because Gregor wants engineers using it to understand it. He calls them the co-pilots. So initially, what we thought we were building was an ultimate design generator that will generate the ultimate best optimal design from every single perspective. As we worked through, through that with different teams and de deployed on initial projects, we learned that actually it's much more useful for, for the project team to get more of a co-pilot that's able to suggest a wide range of different options um, with that, that are good from different perspectives and then allow them to make the final decisions. So the system has a series of templates of those different design rules, logic, built into it. And then what it does is, well, what the engineer, uh, engineering team does is they can configure all of those different parameters through a user interface. One of those co-pilots is the civil engineer we heard from at the beginning, Chris Harmon, who's used Continuum's optioneer software for a pipeline project in the US. Gregor explains how the software is structured for each project. The technology consists of four basic building blocks. So firstly, it takes into account information about the existing environment between location A and location B. We're talking about all the, the available geospatial data. And this can be buildings, existing roads, rivers, woodland, etc., etc. It also takes into account things like designated areas, especially protected zones such as national parks or different types of habitats. The second building block is decision-making logic, which we actually call design rules. And those are codified or parameterized decisions that uh, are very often built into standards, industry standards, that engineering teams and environmental teams need to take into, into account. Think about a pipeline project. The optioneer software doesn't know what the max or min slope of a pipe might be. It doesn't know what the grade change in a pipe where you might need to place a valve. It doesn't know when we're going to want to do just open trench kind of, you can imagine digging a hole and laying a pipe in there and then filling it back up. 
versus when we might want to actually tunnel or bore, they can actually dig down and then send a pipe below ground without disturbing the soil above it. We can give those parameters. So you've got the data sets that's coming in, and then we're providing a set of rules and dependencies, you know, and only cross this road at this angle. Always never run a slope more steep than this. But if you're setting a limit on how the slope, if the ground changes more quickly, then you might go really deep with that pipe, in which case you might say, well, now it's going to be more cost effective to bore. And that's that third step, right? So we've got the, we've got the data, we've got the rules, and then we're going to start adding this weighting criteria. The weighting criteria, or as Gregor describes them, unit costs. The third building block is um, unit costs. And those unit costs effectively tell the system, tell the, uh, tell the software, how good an individual design option is from a different perspective. And this can be financial, so this can be cost of construction, capex, or it could be, it could be opex, but it could also be more environmental metrics, such as um, embodied carbon, or um, in some cases, people prefer to use um, custom weightings that were developed for a custom project or an individual client. This step allows project owners to see the impact of reducing operational costs or seeking a carbon-friendly solution. The iterative nature of the process means that these variables can be changed and re-evaluated quickly. But before any of this evaluation can happen, the system goes through the fourth stage. It's, um, the fourth building block is effectively what allows generative design to happen. So it's, it's based on principles of evolutionary design, which could be compared to how, how humans developed, evolved over time. Um, effectively, the way it works is it generates a set of randomly generated designs they are literally random and look absolutely, absolutely rubbish. But what it does with that is it takes the sort of the good things about individual options. So there could be couple thousand, couple hundred, uh, couple tens of thousands of um, potential options within that initial generation. What the algorithm will do then is will, it, it will take the good ones out of that and it will merge them and combine them together. And it will keep doing it over and over again to generate new and new options until eventually it converges on a diverse set of solutions that it, it believes meets the criteria set out by the user, by the engineering team in the first place. But how does it know what good looks like? Well, it optimizes designs based on the criteria provided by the engineers. So that algorithm, that last step is kind of pulling it all together and then showing us not just the design options, but also kind of the weighted results. You know, this is, I wanna, I prioritize these three things. Show me how much the costs are for these 10 designs. And you can kind of flip between and see which one is showing you the, the biggest impacts. And importantly, the impact of changes can be easily calculated. This is something that is very difficult to take into account with traditional paper-based methods. And Harry says, this is a cultural challenge for people doing the design work. So it's a view of you can do all the work at, at this point of time, this point of a project, and okay, site go do it, check it, right, done, signed off, never to be looked at looked at again, but also also never to be um, to go back and te to test those test those assumptions with terms of new data that may come to light. And new data does come to light. Assumptions change, information, expectations, demands and requirements do change as a project evolves and more people become aware of the plans. 
It is quite simply impossible to nail down every piece of information required to deliver a project in the early optioneering stage. But generative design gives users the option to add or change data and then run the various scenarios quickly without needing to spend weeks or months reworking the design. So let's just, let's just work together on this data set. Let's run this, this guess the output, and then take that to a client, have a set of conversations. And when the client says, no, that's this, this or that isn't right, then we go, yeah, that's fine. Change that, go in, run it once again, is kind of a, a very different mindset to where engineering has been in the past. It also means that decisions can be interrogated. So when somebody says, why did you pick this? What else did you look at? Those are the things that start to get asked. And if you can go back and say, well, actually, I looked at a thousand options. I made it clear that this was the weighting criteria that, you know, impacts to the environment was far outweighed costs to build. And we all agreed that. And you can go back and look at it. You can say clearly if a member of the public comes and says, did you look at this or did you look at that? It's actually much easier to go back and show them all the options and also the weighting around it. What, 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 the, what the criteria, why it, you chose it as the best option. That's not to say the option is perfect. Just like the designs it's creating, the software is improving iteratively. One of the biggest challenges that Gregor's now considering is how social factors are taken into account. At the moment, there's no metric for social value. And actually, weightings are difficult uh, because how do you weigh social impact and directly bring it into this, to the same unit as, say, capex or excavation costs? I'm not sure if that's possible to make that hard link, but what, what, what technology like Optioneer allows one to do is actually evaluate individual metrics or individual impacts or costs in their own units, in their own metric, and then the comparison can be made by a project team, by a human team, and that's an interpretation that they can do. And this evaluation could be very useful. Project owners are being asked to consider more variables than ever before. Social value is something that is very difficult for project teams to factor in, even without this kind of software. But by taking social factors into account, the planners could come up with issues that don't come into view until later in the project. Some might say too late. There's a widespread recognition that the, the metrics, if you like, the indices and the parameters that you put around social factors are far trickier to develop uh, than they are for many environmental tools. Sharon Darcy is a director at charity and think tank Sustainability First. And we develop practical solutions to deliver sustainability in the round with a particular focus on utilities, so the energy sector, water sector, and comms sector. So we try and balance out social, environmental and economic issues and develop solutions that work in practice for people and planet. An infrastructure really is at the heart of sustainability. Many big engineering projects are designed to deliver infrastructure to make all our lives work better. So they're designed to help communities develop, to provide well-being, uh, to provide economic opportunities for, for growth and businesses to flourish. So it's really important that they take social factors into account and that they understand what that community needs, what the range of individuals in that community, how it's made up, how it works, as well as being technologically possible. This means engaging early with local people and using data that didn't exist in the past. 
there's a real opportunity here, I think, for the engineering community to use artificial intelligence and big data to try and pull together these different data sources. And really, at this early stage in planning, to bring the voice of people and communities on board in decision making. This means not starting by making assumptions too early, such as where would you like this railway to run? Or where do you think EV charging points should be placed? When the important questions are around connectivity. The key thing is, is how you frame the question. If you ask people if they're willing to pay for one very discreet thing against another, you'll get a very different response than if you really sort of understand what might drive those choices. So looking at other sources of data can help here. And clearly big data, machine to machine learning, AI can help there. So scraping data from uh, other indices like indexes of multiple deprivation, how those play out in really very granular levels in the community at super output areas and things like that can give you new insights if you then overlay that with other social statistics. So for example, the degree of private rented uh, housing stock in an area will give you an indication of how, for example, people might be able to interact with new technologies such as electric vehicles. If you're in a private rented flat and you haven't got a driveway, you won't be able to have an EV uh, being parked up on your drive to enable you to get certain tariffs. So you'll have a very different social view and sense of expectations than someone in a detached house with a big driveway, for example. So there are multiple sources of data that you can use. And by bringing those together through machine to machine learning, you can get new insights in these social areas. You can also end up with new designs, new ways of doing things that human beings never considered. Here's Chris again. Our world will change. Things will start to look different. You will start to see things in the world that are strange and feel just like, who designed that and why does it look that way? Like an aeroplane door that looks like a spider's web. The concept of generative design has been most recently made famous in in lots of different ways, but one of them is uh, generative design for finite element analysis, which is like an aircraft door or an aircraft a wall in an aircraft. They will look at the stresses through that wall. It's a big, thick piece of steel, and they know which parts are kind of torqued or twisted the most, where the shears were, where the moments are, what, what what are the forces going through this wall, and what does it need to do? And if you plug it into generative design, it actually comes up with a design that looks like nature. There's a lot of bioengineering. There's a lot of biology that goes into generative design. And it looks like a web, like a really strange shape. You can only get it by CNC machining it. It's not a solid piece of metal, but it actually does everything that the door needs to do. And so the software, you know, the generative design software is coming up with these designs that look more like nature. They don't look like a classic engineer would have just slapped a big piece of steel right there. But what artificial intelligence does is like nature. It evolves. It takes a series of parameters that are working and refines them to perform better based on the requirements that the engineers set. It has no preconceptions about how things should be and truly gives people planning projects options they had not considered before. The challenge is not really the technology, the challenge lies in how we use it. And the way we're approaching it is, is we're thinking, we think about this as a trying to build a community. 
There's been a huge amount of talk and thought leadership over the last five years on the theoretical benefits of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the construction and engineering sector. And which is fine, which is absolutely great. We need to have that theoretical underpinning. But it's only now that we're starting to see real practical implementations of AI and machine learning that are delivering the benefits that were discussed five years ago. We're right at the beginning of that. We're right at that early adopter phase, and it's a really exciting space to be in. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was produced and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, co-hosted by Tim Sheehan and edited by Alex Conacher. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young and our algorithmic co-pilot is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our partner Atkins and guests from Continuum Industries and Sustainability First. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media.